Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Henry the Fifth. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Rax Factor, reviewing all the kings and queens of England from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. You've been unwell. Oh, I've been unwell. I have. I have. I was unwell, got better, got ill again. <clears throat> so you get, uh, there's a little bit of rasp in the voice there, but <clears throat> so apologies if it if I go <laughs> like that. But You'll <clears throat> have to try not to talk <clears throat> too much throughout the podcast. I'll just, I'll just listen this week. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll pick up the slack. Okay, <laughs> cheers. Yeah. Just for this week. Yeah, I've, I've got some notes I'll give you. So we're doing Henry V this week. Last week we had Henry IV, probably one of the least famous post-conquest monarchs. In contrast, his son Henry V, one of the most famous. So, very, very famous king. Probably worth saying at the start, his legendary status, acknowledging it. Probably a legend in his own time. In fact, he was a legend in his own time. And then throughout the medieval period, he was seen as this great king. Mm. And of course, most famously, the Tudors loved him. Henry VIII really wanted to emulate his military successes and be as great as Henry V. And of course, in the reign of Elizabeth I, we have William Shakespeare. Yeah. Shakespeare portrays him in three uh, plays, Henry IV, part one and two, where he's this slightly wild and erratic Prince Hal. And then Henry V, where he comes into his own as this legendary Christian heroic king, cares for his subjects, victorious in battle. I've got a few of the great quotes from Henry V here. Um, before the, uh, that happens, though, is there, um, is there any reason why he would be venerated especially by Shakespeare? Is, there, is it it's the Tudor family? Or, I mean, we're going to do that at the end, but well, the, it it's interesting. The Tudors generally portray the whole Wars of the Road, the Lancastrians, the Yorkisters, all are being a bit chaotic and all the kings being a bit rubbish. Right. So Henry IV is a usurper. Um, Henry VI is weak and feeble. Richard III is evil and broken. But Henry V is a one exception where his achievements are just so great. Because the Wars of the Roses put the Tudors in, so they're going to ultimately tailor their history a little. It's, if not <laughs> immensely. <laughs> but Henry V stands out amongst all okay. these other kings. Right. They say he was just His achievements are so great that he just wants to emulate rather than want to yeah, um, okay. spin the other way. Let's hear about him. Some of these are quotes then. This is a siege at Harfleur. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, once more. Or close up the walls with our English dead. Climax of this siege. The game's afoot. Follow your spirit and upon this charge, cry God for Harry, England and St George. That's got to be some of the most famous quotes. Indeed. In and history, band, um, Agincourt. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Yeah, that's pretty pretty epic stuff. Pretty yeah. epic. And this is obviously Henry V, that's in in himself, inspires Shakespeare to mm. what is some of the most famous of, yeah. uh, of his works. Modernists also um, loved him as well, in particular K.B. McFarlane, historian, described him as possibly the greatest man who ever ruled England. Big words. Very big words. However, in more recent years, there's been some of those revisionists have come yeah. in, not so keen on him. Densman Seward said there was something a little inhuman in him. The horrors unleashed were unforgivable and also unforgettable. And T.B. Pugh, a man of limited vision and outlook, by dying when his fortunes were at their zenith, avoided the inevitable bitter harvest of defeat. Yeah, he did a cut Cobain, didn't he? So, we're going to see, is he the legend of Shakespeare, this great king, the most, the greatest king that England ever had, or actually, has he been over-egged by Shakespeare and everybody else? Is he really not a very nice man I'm, and not I'm, such a great king? I've got a way we can find out. What's that? Let's Rex factor this <laughs> Let's one. Let's do it. <laughs> Good. So, he's born in 1387... 
son of Henry IV and Mary de Bohun. So Henry IV is the first of the Lancastrian kings, so Henry V is the second in that line. And he becomes king in 1413, so he's about 26 years old. Mm-hmm. Peak of his powers. And in terms of his relationship to Elizabeth II, he's the first cousin 17 times removed. Mm, Christmas card list then, probably? Yeah, probably. Maybe yeah. not every year, but no. every now and again. In terms of his appearance, apparently he was very tall, uh, brown hair, sort of cut short back and sides, almost a little bit like a monk. Right. And he also had hazel eyes, which apparently, like some of the Plantagenet predecessors, could be very warm and inviting and in a good mood, but quite fiery and mm. scary when he's cross. He also has, because he is a bit of a Plantagenet, he's descended from Edward III, he's got that long face, straight nose, and he's got a big scar on his right cheek from a battle early on. Legend. So he's also um, related to, to Edward I then? He is indeed. Oh, yes. well, it must be a legend. <laughs> um, so, as Prince Henry, Prince Hal, um, mm. under his father Henry IV, he'd been tutored by Harry Hotspur of the oh, Percy family. Awesome, yeah. And they sort of brought him up, understood um, how to you know, do battle and how to fight in war, particularly in Wales. But then Hotspur turns against Henry IV. So at the Battle of Shrewsbury in 1403, Prince Henry fights with his father bravely in this really brutal, brutal battle, which could have seen Henry IV deposed. Um, he himself, Henry V, suffers a really serious wound. That's where he gets his scar on his cheek right. when an arrow went in. God, they love face. getting arrows in the face. Well, I don't know if they sought oh, it, but yeah, it certainly right. happened. And anyway, that's a successful victory. So already from 16, he's led troops in battle. So he's very much a experienced command yeah. from a young so age. So he's fighting for the king, sorry. Fighting yeah, for yeah, his yeah, father, yeah. yeah. In Wales, on his father's behalf, he spent a lot of his time fighting Owen Glendow, the legendary mm. Welsh um, rebel. And then also here he learns the arts of siege warfare, of military finance, the tactics of Edward I, dare we yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, after lots of the rebellions are put down, um, Henry IV, as you alluded to, had that illness with his dehydrated eyes and all sorts of things. So a council was set up, and this led to tensions with his father, where... Henry IV put Archbishop Thomas Arundel as leading the council, but Henry V felt, as Prince of Wales as the king's son, he should be the leader. Oh, that's right, yeah. So there were rumours of maybe Henry IV being asked to abdicate, a bit of tension there, but they came round to it, they made peace with each other, and Henry V, as he would become, won a lot of admiration for his able administration when he was actually ruling the council. So lots of promising signs. So when he becomes king, he was said to have transformed from the wild... Prince Hal that Shakespeare portrays into a very pious and very serious king. So apparently he rewarded um, all of his sort of drinking buddies from his younger days, but then dismissed them from court. He made a very that's really, absolute. That's the first time we've seen this because normally um, I can't think of the other one, but definitely Stephen. There was someone else we compared to Stephen. Good in uh, um, before that, a good general, mm. poor king. Henry the Fourth as well, excellent as Henry Bolingbroke, but fails as king. This mm. guy. Does the opposite, so he's go more serious as king, mm. and he doesn't bring his friends in like the like Edward the Second, Edward the Second, Richard the Second, the cronies. He doesn't go in. Finally, learning. He does have his close supporters. He's got three younger brothers, which sometimes um, for kings can be a bit of a daunting thing. We yeah. remember William Rufus, Henry the First. Yeah. They're sort of uh, getting rid of each other. Instead, here he's got Thomas, Duke of Clarence, a hot-headed soldier; John, Duke of Bedford, religious man but also a great soldier and statesman. And his younger brother, Humphrey, the Duke of Gloucester, who's very intelligent, not such a great statesman, but idolises Henry V. His brothers all support him. Oh, so awesome. he's got three brothers, all fighting with him mm. at his side. So he's got a big family group around him. But he makes a big effort to restore unity. 
Mm. So under Henry the Fourth, we'd seen re- lots of rebellions throughout the reign. The sense of a usurper, the yeah. Lancastrian yeah. dynasty not established. Henry V, right from the start, restores the enemies of Henry IV to their former positions and titles, brings them all straight back in, including his biggest rival, Edmund Mortimer, who arguably has a better claim to the throne than he does. And he also reburies Richard II. So Henry IV had buried him in just some sort of church, not a very particularly extravagant burial, whereas Richard II had actually um, built his own tomb at Westminster Abbey. So Henry V gives him the proper ceremonial burial at Westminster Abbey as his sign of reconciliation. Oh, well, so a bit of an expert diplomat going on. There. Very good diplomatic stuff. In fact, the only, he only faces one rebellion against him his whole reign, and it's quite early on, the Southampton plot, Southampton plot um, where three nobles planned to replace Henry um, with Edmund Mortimer. So these three were uh, the Earl of Cambridge, Richard Conisper, uh, the Baron of Masham, Henry Scrope, and also Sir Thomas Grey of Heaton, they planned to kill him at Southampton before he was going to leave for France and then bring in Mortimer instead. But Mortimer's his brother. His uh, sort of, oh, what is he, cousin. Right. Cousin. But Mortimer reports it to the authorities, reports it to Henry, ringleaders captured and executed, and uh, it's all safe. And Mortimer's been saved. And Mortimer's okay, he's, he's let off. The age of sense. Indeed, it's all oh, making sense. Yeah. He's got everyone on board. Because what Henry V wants to do he doesn't need to establish himself in England. He wants to go back to France. Yeah. So he's establishing a case for just war. And his claim is, going back to Edward III, 1360, the um, Treaty of Brittany, whereby England was given ownership of French lands in Aquitaine, Normandy, Calais and Gascony. And since then, it's all been in decline. The French have taken a lot of it back. And Henry V is saying, hey, we've got a treaty, and you've broken the treaty and taken the land. We want it back. Mm. Um, Charles VI was a French king at this time, and he was suffering from madness, which meant that there was an opportunity for England to take advantage. Now, you asked, I think, before, what the madness actually I entailed. I did, yeah, yeah. This is what it entailed. Brilliant. 1392, Charles VI, French king, apparently attacked his own men while riding through a forest when he had a sudden uh, lapse of sense. Did they have the same uniform on? They were all, yeah. Oh, yeah, the skins. 1393, apparently couldn't remember his name or that he was king. 1395 to 96, he claimed that his name was George. Um, the entrances in his residence were walled up to stop him running wild all over the place when he had sort of mad half hours. Uh, 1405, apparently he refused to bathe or change clothes for five months. And he also had something called glass delusion, which is whereby he feared that he was made of glass. Oh, I've heard this, yeah. So he wouldn't let people touch him and wore reinforced clothing in case he would shatter. So, yeah. Oh, poor chap. Bizarre thing, but what this means is that France is in a really terrible state internally, so they're pretty much on the verge of civil war. The Duke of Burgundy assumed the regency in 1392, but he was very much in um, rivalry with the House of Orleans, the Armagnac family. And then in 1407, Louis of Orleans, the younger brother of Charles VI, was assassinated by the Duke of Burgundy. So France... Is on the verge. On the verge of civil war, so it's a great opportunity for Henry. And we're looking really strong. He's got that all secure at home. He's got unity at home. So what do we have in France? What? So what? So he's got must have a base in which to launch his campaign. Is it that what we call the left? (laughs) Yeah, the well, the the very left. The the very very left. So he's still got Calais, bits of Gascony, but not an awful lot more. Henry, um, as he has to do, starts negotiations. He can't just invade because that wouldn't be um, right due process, sends an embassy to France in 1414 to demand the restoration of 1360 rights, and the inevitable refusal would yeah. then be a just cause for war. Unfortunately, the French were much more amenable than he'd hoped for, 
and actually offered him huge concessions. So then he demanded full restoration, not just of 1360, but of the old Angevin Empire, going back oh, to right, Richard yeah. the Lionheart and Henry II. So he's really pushing it. He just wants them to say no right. so that he can go and fight. And thankfully for them, he does say no. Hey, so okay. 1415, Henry goes off and campaign to France, takes a large number of troops and archers, captures um, his important coastal city and heavily fortified town of Harfleur, but he loses a lot of troops through dysentery. So then he's got to make his way back, right, yeah. back to the coast, and he's going back to Calais, which is English territory. Mm-hmm. But rather than doing it sort of by sea or by river, he decides to go by land, which is right. rather tricky because it means that there's a chance for the French to yeah, catch yeah. him. Apparently he pretty much wanted battle. He was even telling the French, yeah, I'm going this way, so... You know, <laughs> see you there. See you on the way. <laughs> French pursue Henry um, throughout France and eventually hem him down near Agincourt. Oh, no, something's brewing. French, vastly superior numerically, keen for revenge for all the defeats under Edward III, but bad weather and poor tactics on their part, plus decisiveness and courage from Henry, lead to an overwhelming English victory. Hmm. The aftermath of this for England is the army's too depleted to continue the campaign, so England, England's troops have to go home. But English glory is restored back to the glory yeah. days of Edward III, and there are huge losses to the French nobility. So Henry's reputation is assured. His dynasty, the Lancastrian dynasty, is legitimised at home because yeah. we've now got a heroic king everyone can get behind. And then he wins support in Europe, including the Holy Roman Emperor Sigismund. So, did he, did he end, with this campaign, this first 1415, mm. um, any land gained? No real land gained, but apart just, from the city of Harfleur. So he's just really poked them in the eye? Poked them in the eye, but, th- well, probably not hundreds of thousands, but hundreds of major French nobles are killed at Agincourt. Right. So long term, the French are really weakened by this. Right, okay. So next time yeah. it comes back, it's all going to be good. Mm. Sure enough, he has a campaign in Normandy. Starts off with a naval victory. In 1416, his brother, the Duke of Bedford, defeated a French fleet in the mouth of the River Seine, which was trying to besiege Harfleur and get it back. So that's cleared the English Channel, so they've now got control of the seas, which means that they can get supplies and men yeah. into France. He then has a period of siege warfare throughout Normandy, so he progresses through from 1417 to 19, taking town after town, aided by the Duke of Burgundy now. So he's got the support of one half of the... Oh, right. French. Okay, yeah. So he's got the Burgundians against the Armagnacs, um, a chap called John the Fearless. Right, so he's got playing their enemies off against yeah, each other. Yeah, so John the Fearless, Duke of Burgundy, makes move from Paris, diverting some of the French resources, which means that Henry's able to focus on everywhere else. And he focuses attention on Rouen, which is the capital city of Normandy, heavily fortified, set up to survive siege warfare, but extensive siege put in place and eventually the city's forced to submit and all of Normandy is conquered by Henry V. The whole of Normandy back in English claims. Things move on. 1419, the next year, the Duke of Burgundy is assassinated by the Armagnacs, the rival. And he's a chap on our side. He's a chap on our side. The Burgundians, panicked by this, throw all their support now behind Henry Henry V, they mm-hmm. want his support and they want vengeance. That backfired by the Armagnac then? It did indeed, because what happens is, in 1420, the Treaty of Troyes, it is agreed with King of France, Charles VI, that Henry, Henry V of England, will be the heir to the French kingdom. So when Charles VI dies, Henry V will become King of France. And Charles VI looking pretty... Ill. Charles VI looking pretty ill, old and mad. This is huge news. Indeed, and what will happen is, um, in return, Henry will marry Charles VI's daughter, Catherine de Valois, and 
after that, he will continue the war against the Armagnacs. So he's going to help the Burgundians defeat the French rivals. So how did this come about? How, is, so he's... Because the Burgundians have lost their great yeah. leader, the Duke of Burgundy, and Henry V is their ally, so they decide, we just want to defeat the Armagnacs. So we're going and we to want ex- a leader. We and we want one. a leader, and Henry V is his great leader, so they think he can destroy them for us. So marries the uh, king's daughter... So then you've still got that family link, and yeah. then you've got the two. That's still huge, though. Imagine the War of the Roses, um, the French coming along, and us throwing our weight, by, like the Yorkists throwing their weight by the French, yeah. and saying just to beat them. Exactly. Wow, this is huge, okay. Huge. So, very popular marriage to Catherine de Valois. Um, Henry is at height of his powers, and Catherine is apparently an attractive 19-year-old princess. It's all looking good. Previous consorts have been quite unpopular and offered very little, not very much dowry, not much money, not very popular. Instead, she brings an entire kingdom. Yes, her dowry. Apparently, about thirty thousand people greeted them on their arrival into London. Lots of celebrations. Everyone's very happy. Afterwards, however, fourteen twenty-one, the Battle of Bourges. Um, his brother Thomas, the Duke of Bedford, is killed, defeated by a Franco-Scottish army. So, back goes Henry V. Sort it all out. Take the initiative back against the Armagnacs. So the Scots aren't settled then. There, oh, the Scots still yeah. giving a bit of help. Yeah. So there's ongoing war. Henry returns, captures uh, Mo. In 1422, which apparently was the Dauphin stronghold, the Dauphin being the leader of the Armagnacs, the prince who yeah. has a claim to the throne. However, at Mo, Henry falls ill through dysentery. And in fact, he falls fatally ill. So he makes arrangements for his young son's minority, who he'd never seen. He's less than a year old, his son, Henry VI, as he will become. Um, Bedford is to be regent in France. Gloucester is to be Henry VI's protector and uh, Thomas Beaufort, his governor. Arrangements made. Henry VI, 1422, dies at the age of 35, six weeks short of becoming King of France. Six weeks before Philip dies? Uh, before Charles VI dies. Charles VI dies. Oh, that is just snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. It really is. So he's just about to become King of France, but he dies. That's heavy. That's The crown, our fingers are right there. Oh, God, how frustrating. So that is the life of Henry V. Um, short we're now but gonna, amazing. Short but incredible. So we're now mm. going to review him. Battliness, scandal, subjectivity, how long he rules for, how many children he has, and whether or not he has the mark of greatness that we call the Rex Factor. Let's go. Battliness! So, warrior, there's lots of stuff here. This is what Henry V basically does this is the whole his, of his reign. Yeah, this is his bit, isn't it? Before he became king, as we mentioned earlier, we have the Battle of Shrewsbury in 1403 when he was uh, Prince Hal. His injury, he was stuck in, struck in the face by an arrow, apparently penetrating six inches below his right eye. Oh. Oh, indeed. The royal physician, John Bradmore, apparently treated the wound with honey to act as an antiseptic and created a special tool just for that job to screw into the broken arrow shaft to extract it without further damage. So, uh, so, so the arrow goes through his cheek mm. and lodges somewhere at the back of his throat, yeah. head. Mm. So he's removed from the battle at this point? Well, apparently he was quite cross. He didn't want to be removed. He wanted to fight on, but they had to drag him off saying, it looks pretty serious. <laughs> have a look at that. Yeah. Time out. You can go back. Just let me put this plaster on. Um, it worked. They flushed him with alcohol and Henry survived. So left with that uh, battle mm. scar, which marks him out, of course, yeah. at a young age as having been... Uh, pretty cool. Pretty cool. Um, do we have a picture of that? Because we've only got that one of him side They on. didn't have many photos at <laughs> this time. Yeah. But I suppose that's why he was looking left in... Look, well, he was looking to yeah, the right. Yeah, no, we don't have uh, the, that side. Oh, it's a shame. Mm. 
Wales, also as prince. Um, Henry IV has struggled to subdue our England now, but Prince Henry, Henry V, used Edward I's tactics yeah, of, of gradual economic blockade, using the castles gradually to push them back. Yeah. So it's really him who can take the credit. <laughs> yeah, I was saying, I mean, yeah. not Edward I. But of course, the big stuff is when he becomes king. 1415, that campaign he took into France, apparently he took about 15,000 men, at least 11,200 of whom were soldiers, mainly archers, Yeah. Um, in August. First of all, he takes Harfleur, which is this principal seaport um, of France. Successful, but as we said, lots of men die from dysentery, the bloody flux, as it was known at the time. Apparently it's about 1,500 men. So it's the flux? Yeah. They just... Dysentery, yeah. they die. So that's, you know, it's almost like a tenth mm, that's of the right. army he took with him. Calais, he couldn't march on Paris's depleted army, so that's why he decided to go back um, to English-held Calais. I think probably... If there was any logic to his decision to go by land, it was so that he was sort of demonstrating his power and his sort of, ha, ah, see, I can yeah. walk across the whole country. But of course, he's pursued by the French across France, unable to get to Calais. He has to fight them at Agincourt, where we have one of the most famous battles in English history. Yeah, I mean, we had a chat earlier, mm. Cressy or Agincourt, but really it's a moot point. They're both, they're, I mean, they are the two, Cressy, Agincourt... Battle of Britain. Indeed. They're, I mean, they're probably the three big... Victories. Yeah, big... Oh, Waterloo. Waterloo. Yeah. Anyway, to yes. look at Agincourt, French went into this extremely confident, in fact, supremely confident. They were certain they were going to win, so much so that, in fact, they were fighting for who got to be on the front line. And they were getting drunk chance. and stuff, weren't they? Before yeah, they were yeah. loving it. Um, they were desperate to avenge the defeats of Cressy, Poitiers as well, and they knew the English were depleted and low on supplies. So the advantage in terms of manpower was something like 20,000... To the French against nine thousand to the English. So French were pretty confident yeah. that they yeah. were going to take this. Henry's tactics—they'd had a three-hour standoff, the two armies facing each other—and this was, of course, benefiting the French because they knew running out of supplies, he can't just wait there indefinitely. Wisdom, however, was to wait to be attacked, use the longbows to. So yeah, it's three-hour standoff. That they were walking along, and went, oh, there's the French. And they stopped, or did they? It's, they approached no, so they've been camped camp. yeah, overnight, yeah, yeah. and then in the morning they they woke up and went, oh, neighbors. still there. <laughs> yeah, okay. So common tactics: you wait to be attacked, yeah. use your archers against the first charge. But the army was so weak that Henry made the decision that they were going to charge on the French, or at least advance closer to the French. So what happens is the whole army sprints through the wet mud because it's been pouring with rain. This is from the common archers to Henry himself, everybody charging it towards the French. The archers had to get within range of the French so that they could start shooting before the cavalry of the French is able to charge yeah, at them. Yeah. French, in contrast, make a lot of tactical errors. The ground was poorly chosen. It was basically a narrow space between two woods, so they couldn't really go around the sides very easy. They could only do a direct right, yeah. charge. And it was sloping away on either side, which meant you had to sort of go down and then go up again mm. to get to the other side. And because it had been raining, the middle bit is basically just a quagmire. It's just horrible, sticky, deep mud. Mm. Mm. Moreover, they're taken completely by surprise by the fact that the English advanced first. They hadn't seen this advance coming. So the cavalry charge comes in just a little bit too late. The archers have got in place. So they are completely undone by the archers, and moreover, the mud severely limits their movements. So the cavalry charge is just wiped out, basically. 
So the English have run forward, so they're in position, ready, and they've yeah. gone, oh hell, we better charge as well. Yeah. But then archers, archers in place, are in place, take, take them out. Them down, right? So then the French send in their 8,000 men at arms, leading them in to do hand-to-hand fighting. So this is when it really starts to get brutal. Unfortunately, again, for the French, the English are lightly armoured, very light armour on, but the French are in full-body-plated armour, which means when they get into the mud, they're weighed down by it, can't move very easily, easy target for the archers, plus it's quite exhausting. Fighting a battle and hardly being able to move, trudging yeah. along. So the mass of men become too tightly packed. The French, fact that the French have got so many men actually becomes a disadvantage because they're in space for them all to fight. Yeah, so they get all going bunched over up. Each other. Yeah. And bodies are just falling all over the place. Apparently, the English started to use the French dead as duckboards to walk over the mud and even improvised forts. <laughs> that is horrible, horrible but I was not expecting that I, walking over them fine like using them as shields fine but to yeah. sort of pace them together that's amazing yes and Henry very much in the thick of the fighting his younger brother Humphrey apparently was um, wounded that wound to the groin sounds a bit mm. painful so he falls to the ground completely vulnerable so Henry takes his household guard and stands over him, fighting, until they can be relieved. So Henry there, right in the front line, standing over his brother. The French, of course, target Henry. And he's wearing a um, helmet with a crown on it, so they can easily identify Oh, so yeah, yes, I've seen the um, old 60s film. Henry, yeah. uh, silver crown, yeah, gold crown. Apparently an axe actually broke the crown on his helmet. That's Ooh. how much in the thick of it Henry was. How close it was. But he, he doesn't get killed. He survives. The English have an overwhelming victory. French lose something like 7,000 men. English only about 500. Wow! Overwhelming victory. As we said, they gain little territory, but wipe out a huge amount of the French nobility. Hugely enhances Henry's reputation in England and abroad. And as Antonio Fraser said, in terms of the Lancastrian legitimacy, Agincourt achieved in a single day the goal which Henry IV had laboured for 13 years to attain. Crumbs, yeah, that is huge. It's incredible. Yeah, that's that's as if they they, they didn't even bother turning up. They should have that seven thousand to five hundred. Yeah, crumbs. And you consider at the start it was twenty thousand against nine. So now they're looking at basically thirteen thousand versus nine thousand. Yes, although obviously the French have rather lost and courage. Yeah, and they just peg it. Yeah. yeah. Um, as well as Agincourt, we have um, developments in the navy. Apparently a marked increase in royal patronage of shipbuilding as well as technological development. So for the first time he um, had built a special forge at Southampton. And in particular, they advanced multi-masted ships. Cool. So in 1416 you had the introduction of the Misan Sail, or Messan Sail, which I didn't look up, I presume you'd be able to yeah. Yeah, tell me what that is. Yeah, so it's the mast at the back, like a mizzen mast, I guess, is mm. the early development of that. Yeah. And then 1420, the Grace Dew ship has three masts. So quite big developments in the ships. And of course the Battle of the uh, Seine, 1416, where his brother defeats a French and Genoese fleet. Um, Apparently a six-hour battle, another real naval Mm. epic. But this gives England complete control of the channel and means that as Henry has his second campaign in France, English ships can, with wanton abandon, just go up through the rivers unchallenged. Something we've never really lost, Graham. Indeed. (laughs) Normandy campaign, as we said before, really impressive siege warfare. No more open battles after Agincourt. Obviously, the French are rather reluctant to take him on in mm. that sense again. So you need long and heavy sieges to capture these very heavily fortified towns to make any progress. And Henry does it. 1417, he captures um, Caen, Vernoy, 
for Nui, perhaps, and for Lays, mm. the old uh, stomping ground of William the Conqueror. 1418, aided by the Duke of Burgundy, uh, Burgundy threatening Paris from the north, so this allows Henry V to take control of basically all of Lower Normandy. Yeah. Then we have Rouen, 1418 to 1419, heavily defended capital of Normandy, well prepared for a siege. Henry builds big tower, artillery towers to you know, launch the catapults at them, surrounds the town with ditches filled with stakes and traps, so that you know people can't get out easily and run away. They're hemmed in, so he shores ample provisions from England, thanks to the yeah. trade routes, but starves the city until eventually they are forced to surrender. And once ruin has fallen, that's it for Normandy. Uh, yeah, okay, right, right. But not Paris? Not Paris. Now, this is a bit of an aside, but has Paris ever been taken since 1066? Ooh. I don't think it has. I mean, well, there was the Franco-Prussian There was um, siege. Second World War as well, technically. They didn't invade Paris. Oh, uh, yeah. That's a biggie. Though. Occupied I totally it. forgot. My brain went up to <laughs> 1918 then. Yeah. But no, otherwise, mm. Paris doesn't get taken, I don't think. So, immensely successful generalship, methodically taking town by town, castle mm. by castle. He's directing these sieges from the front a lot of the time. But he also wins support of the locals afterwards by restoring people to their positions of power and estates so that they're governing. This is like the perfect storm of brilliant military leader and excellent diplomat. Exactly. This is good Going stuff. well. Later years, of course, he has that um, hard-fought victory against the Dauphin stronghold of Mo, so he's still winning mm. yeah. just before winning. he dies. And uh, it was praised from the contemporaries. I picked out this one because it's a French chronicle, the Monk of Saint-Denis. No prince in his time appeared more capable to subdue and conquer a country by the wisdom of his government, by his prudence, and by the other qualities with which he was endowed. Yeah, the enemies are saying that. That's pretty, pretty high price. Yeah. Case against him for battliness. I'm not sure I want to hear it. Well, it's not big, to be honest. Agincourt, you could argue he was lucky. Questionable tactic to go over the land to Calais. Very risky. And very poor French tactics and dreadful weather were crucial in Henry's victory. On the other hand, so was decisive thinking and heroic yeah, exactly, hand-to-hand fighting. Yeah, yeah. The other thing you could argue against him, which again is a bit of a stretch, but it's the only thing I could think of, his early death. This means that he ends at his peak, like you say, like Kurt Cobain, when he's at the height of his powers. Arguably, the Treaty of Troyes, where he becomes the heir to the French throne, you could say he'd overreached himself. This is going to be such a commitment to have to maintain, have to continue a French civil war, in effect, and maintain the English kingdom and the French kingdom, Arguably, it was likely that he might have suffered that decline that Edward III suffered after his victories. Yeah. But because he dies young, he dies yeah. right at the peak rather than... Edward III would have done well to die at yeah, 35 exactly. as well. Um, <laughs> but that's but yeah, but all I've got. None of that happens. And you would have thought the English decline wouldn't have been as bad if we'd had this, uh, this great military leader at yeah. the forefront. So we can't blame him for dying, obviously, but no. we can't... Um, and we can't predict the future that it would have gone badly, but then if we had maybe Edward, um, if we had Henry V in charge instead of his uh, yes. successor, yes. we'd have gone the other way as well. So I don't know, I, I can't see any bad there at all. I, I, mean, I, could, I mean, there is little things, but... You, I mean, essentially we're saying that he, was, he, he could have lost Agincourt if things had gone against him a bit more, which is the case in any battle. And we're saying that he might have been less yeah, successful if he'd lived longer. Yeah. There, I, there's no real concrete failure... And all we have is these incredible victories. All we have is one of the most famous battles in English history and effectively conquering France. I can't see how he can't give him full marks. 
but someone's got to be at the top, and I, I don't know how. I can't see it. I mean, he restores. Um, we're forgetting here, actually, that he restores the unity to Britain. Yes, you without think Henry the Fourth reign had been rebellions all yeah. the way through, and that's the point at which he inherits. The he just comes in and sort of has this aura of sense, and yeah. everyone goes, "Yeah, okay, okay," and then. Bang, he's off. Oh, it's ten for me. Ten for me as well. Our first ever tens, so the highest ever score there. Twenty. Great start for Henry V. Scandal. We do have some scandal for Henry V. All right. Perhaps not contemporary scandal, but something we would look on with um, dubious eyes now. Yeah. Agincourt, there was a notorious moment where he ordered 200 English archers to cut the throats of a large number of French prisoners. Something in the region of 300 to 400. Ian Mortimer historians argued that perhaps the men were too focused on taking quick profits from prisoners when this French vanguard was regrouping. So they thought they'd won the battle and then the French were looking like they were going to launch another assault. And he's suggesting that Henry made a quick decision. Kill the prisoners, put everything down, going to fight again. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's his suggestion, but either way, it's pretty it's brutal. Pretty bad, yeah. The alternative is just, he's like, oh, just kill them. Kill them. Oh, uh, yeah, so either way, he took a ruthless decision. But took a very ruthless decision. Um, but it's not only sort of par for the course because it's medieval times and we had Richard Lionheart slaughtering all the Muslims in Acre, I think it was. But, yeah. Um, Which was you know, like thousands, wasn't thousands it? Wasn't it? Of them, and yeah. as you said, that was this very regimented. Yeah, process. I mean, that was a... He had a thing set up to clear the bullets. Mm. This, also, heat of the battle. This is the thing. Heat of the battle, arguably, the site of the rearguard rallying. He might have been feared that the prisoners... Yeah. That they couldn't actually maintain if they're having to fight a battle. The prisoners then could become assailants yeah, again. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's not very nice, but in the heat of the battle, as you say, vastly outnumbered. He's uh, He's just deploying his incredible... Skills of tactician, I think. Mm. He's uh, had to make a decision. He made one. It was ruthless, but not not un, mm. unreasonable for a medieval king, I'd say. There's more, though. Oh. His siege warfare, in particular, is where he gets a bit of a brutal reputation. This is where some of the quotes I did at the start, historians who don't like him very much. This is a side to him that they pick out. When he took uh, the town of Kine, he was said to have ordered every male over the age of 12 to be killed. Oh, that is a bit nasty. Apparently his justification was, I am the scourge of God sent to punish the people of God for their sins. You definitely have 15 years going, I'm 11. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an early developer. Louviers in 1418, apparently there's a ruthless hanging of eight gunners. Rouen, in particular. Women and children at one point came out of the town, starving, hungry, desperate, came into the town, hoped to be allowed through the English lines to receive food. Instead, forced them into the ditches... No food and no shelter through some very harsh, cold and wet weather. What did he then do with them? Just sort of let them go? Just, just left them there. Didn't let them go. You starved them to death? I don't think they all starved to death. Right. But so I don't imagine they all made it through. Yeah. Um, John Page, who was a balladeer soldier at one, said, Even if a child should otherwise be dead, the mother would not give it bread. Such was the level of starvation that was imposed on the city. But that's a siege. But that's the way that you win a siege warfare yeah. through starving the city and surrender. I mean, if you supply them with food, you'd just be um, camping. Yeah, <laughs> camping outside the nice <laughs> yeah. cosy castle. Exactly. Uh, it's not camping, it's a siege. I, I... Thing is, as well, Henry would argue he actually gives the town a choice. He says, you can surrender or you will starve. And when he does 
then when they do surrender, he restores the people back and he's diplomatic. Absolutely. If we compare him to Edward III, who sort of went raping and pillaging across France, really pretty brutal, and Edward III certainly didn't control it at times, maybe even yeah, encouraged, it, we encouraged thought, it. In contrast, Henry V lays very strict ground rules to ensure that his soldiers don't plunder or rape in captured towns. So apparently once the town does surrender, he took care to make sure that people were provided with food and even had guards sort of set up in quadrants of the cities yeah, right. to stop, you know, uh, bad That's treatment. That's good. I'm, I'm not giving him any, any for that. He also had rules against women coming within three miles of the camp, again, in this fear of... Within three miles? Three miles of the God, camp. I can't see that Indeed. <laughs> apparently the first time that they broached yeah. the camp, uh, they received a warning to stay clear. And then the second time, they break their left arm. Just yeah. right, but again, that's portrayed on the one hand as Henry's cruelty, on the other hand, it's for their own good. Yeah, they've all got the the clap. What was it called? The, the flux, the bloody flux, and got as well. So yeah, again, it's almost for their protection because he doesn't want his men to be raping. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's trying to stop them. Um, and as you said, his character as a king. He is deeply, deeply pious, a very pious man. He ascribes his military victories to God, sees them as confirmations that he is right in what he is doing, because otherwise God would alter it. Founds lots of monasteries, etc. He's even um, abstained from sexual relations from the point of his coronation until his marriage. Really? Doesn't have sex, no mistresses, no, none of that. Completely abstains. 19-year-old princess that brings him his kingdom. It is, but oh, that's, That was right at the end, wasn't it? That's right at the end. So from 1413 to 1420, Well, aside no sexual from liaisons me, at all. Aside from me not believing that for a second. Widely said, because <laughs> again, remember, he transforms as king. He absolutely gets rid of fun. So, yeah. No more fun once he becomes <laughs> yeah. king. Fun is out. Yeah, I mean, he'd lose points, really, for me for that. But, I mean, I guess that's... that's well, this is the thing, though. This is a scandal. Good, yeah. In terms of scandal, that's actually, you know, good, yeah. you've got some nasty stuff, but there's excuses for all of it. And then there's piety and chastity. I think, you know, okay, so he decided, he took this this um, uh, chastity, and when he became king, transformed man, and he, the way you've been describing it, he's suddenly, the, he's, the something goes over his eyes, and he's just this ruthless tactician, and he is jolly successful. So mm. everything he does, he's doing for the sake of his campaigns, mm. and as you say, for a reason. So... Mm. I don't think there's much scandal there. It's all for a purpose. And, mm. and it's not very scandalous and at the not time. It's not scandalous anyway, yeah. It's just unpleasant. It, yeah. But you could argue not as unpleasant as mm. some of the other stuff we've had. And unpleasant as being war. Yes, I mean, it's the reality of it. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm giving him 0. 0.5. 0. 0.5. For Oof. a whiff of a broken arm. <laughs> um, well, I, I was going to give him a 3 for some nastiness. Mm. I think people hear the nastiness and some of them think, you know, that should be recognised. But it's still low score. Three and a half, right back down again. Yeah. Subjectivity. So, will he uh, get high or low marks here? This could be the one that really mm. sets him apart in terms of his score. Yeah. On the plus side, he restores national unity, which is a big thing. After the reigns of Richard II and Henry IV, we've seen rebellions, disunity amongst the nobility... Even in the royal family, even with Henry V's family, mm. or Henry IV's family, there being disunity. In contrast, Henry V works really well with his brothers. Um, they all serve Henry admirably, which is said by no means guaranteed for yeah. all monarchs in history that their yeah. brothers will support them. 
as well as strong support from his uncles, the Beauforts. Restoring his enemies, Mortimer, despite him being his greatest rival, has his estates restored, the Earls of Huntington and Oxford are restored to favour. Despite all of his family and friends, he doesn't have any favourites. Mm. So it's back to Edward III, whereby basically it's more the meritocracy. It's just he wants everybody on board serving him, fighting the French. Yeah, it's good. And it's really, really it. good. And of course, as we said, Richard II, he gives him a proper burial at Westminster Abbey. Yeah. Interestingly, he'd actually been in Richard's household in Ireland in 1399 when Henry IV, his father, had launched the rebellion against Richard II. Oh, right. So Henry V is with his sort of father's enemy at the time that he launches it all kicks off. And to his credit, to Richard II's credit, he liked Henry V, and he chose not to use him as a political prisoner. They let him go. So it may have been that Henry V actually quite respected Richard II. He is quite a balanced chap. I think this is really, really... I mean, there's that's got to... If it was on um, English All Alone, that's got a score 10. He's totally restored the, the monarchy. And we've got good governance. So with Parliament, Henry IV had a constant struggle, but Henry V, much more cordial relationship, improves the royal finances and wins huge grants mm. to fund his wars in France. Law and order, he was praised by his contemporaries, including the French, for his rigorous pursuit of justice, which was another area said to have declined under Henry IV. And order was said to have maintained pretty stable, despite the fact that for many years he's not actually in the country. Yeah. He's in France. It's his legacy uh, shadow over him. So he's able to rule from afar. So he still insisted on dealing personally with all petitions being forwarded from England. So it's not like Richard I, Richard the Lionheart, where he just goes off for ten years and can't be bothered with England. He's still very much connected to it. And he is a very English king. Of course, we have the military glory, where he wins great acclaim for his exploits um, abroad. But national identity is important here as well. The glory of Agincourt is rapturously... Um, yeah. cheered and championed at home in England. So the real sense of England against France, which he had a bit with Edward III, but of course the decline had lost that. But again, there's this real sense of everybody behind the king. That would have spelt trouble then if he did become king of France, if there was this division between the two. But I thought it was going to be more chicken and egg. What um, Englishness forged from this battle, um, and we look back on it through Shakespeare and stuff, mm. and this is what brings a sense of Englishness. But uh, even at the time, it was... Even at the time. And he promotes the use of the English language. So... Um, this is the appearance of something called Chancery Standard English, which is sort of transitional between late Middle English and sort of early modern English. So Chancery? Chancery Standard. Oh, right. oh, not Chaucer, then. Not Chancery yeah. Standard. And this is in response to the fact that Henry ordered that English would be the language of government. It's taken 300 years. Not until then. And apparently he's the first king to use English in his personal correspondence since 1066. And the rest were French? Mm, French or Latin. Wow. So, he's, he's an English This kid. is English, yeah, this is brilliant. And another great thing for his uh, subject, subjectivity is his sort of European status. As we said, he's got support from the um, Holy Roman Emperor Sigismund, who apparently went to visit him at one point after Agincourt to try and broker a peace treaty. Well treated by Henry, lavishly entertained, and he left actually supporting Henry's claim to the <laughs> French throne. So he's a charmer. He's Blair. He's, he's loved Blair, in Europe. He's loving it. Yeah. But then there's uh, the papacy was suffering something called the Great Schism. Oh, yeah, um, with the East of the Byzantines. Well, yeah, so 1378, there was election of two popes. Oh, right, OK, sorry. Um, and, of course, a crisis of unity, because, of course, he needed one pope. Yeah. Problem. Henry intervenes in this, helps to resolve the issue at the Council of Constance, whereby English delegates, with Henry's instructions, push the Holy Roman Emperor to hold a new election with just one pope. So the old ones are persuaded to resign and abdicate, and one pope is elected in their place, Martin V. So, 
Henry V's yeah, help to resolve a major idea, international uh, dispute. Yeah. All pretty good stuff. But. Yeah, there is a but. Against Henry, we do have some stuff here. In terms of finance, although he had good relations with Parliament, from 1416, Parliament was starting to raise concerns about the costs of the war. Indeed, 1420, Henry actually avoided asking for further taxation, taxations due to the sensitivity of the subjects. He realised... That's good subjectivity, though. He's, he realised the sensitivity. It's good, but at the end of his reign, many of his debts are left unpaid. He's not much more solvent than his father, Henry IV, had been. Even troops, apparently, were sort of complaining a couple of years later after Agincourt they hadn't been paid. Yeah, well, there's... Well, there's and that's a bit Edward I, isn't it, leaving... Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it is very Edward I. He left... I know we're going to come on to this, um, the, the, the Treaty of Troyes, but um, possibly overreaching himself. But that is, that, that's what happens when you die in the middle of a campaign. Edward I didn't mm. die wanting to leave <clears throat> debts. Yeah. He thought he was going to smash the Scots, you yeah. know, take plunder. He thought he was going to be the King of France. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is, that's part of the gamble. Another thing in terms of his money, his greed, uh, Joan of Navarre was his uh, stepmother, widow of Henry IV, and he accused her, or she was accused, of being a witch. Oh. And this allowed him to arrest her, take her very costly dowry, and all the money from her lands. Yeah. So he steals her money. She gets released later, but uh, not a very pleasant experience for her. Yeah. As you said, Parliament from 1420 it started to become a bit more critical of Henry, because he'd been in France for three years by that yeah. point, fighting these wars. So it's a fear of England potentially becoming relegated as his secondary concern. So they don't like the idea that yeah. he's going to become basically King of France and England's pushed off. And indeed, the Treaty of Troyes, 1420, which is where he becomes heir, English and French thrones, Parliament was quite sniffy about the treaty. It took them a while to ratify it. They were concerned that Englishmen might become subject to French laws and customs. And from their perspective, this marked the end of it as an English conflict. So like you said, Henry now, they think, you're the King of France as well now, so the French subjects can pay for the French wars. Yeah. It's not our problem anymore. Yeah. So again, he might have had problems with this afterwards yeah. because the English Parliament weren't so keen on You can understand their concern, but but he's uh that's the benefit of it's huge. It is, but we should also not exaggerate um the extent to which it was finished. It was by no means mission accomplished. No. Or I suppose in terms of the Iraq war it was. The Dauphin, um the Armagnac ruler, still ruled half of France. So it's still a case of civil war. So Henry was reliant on that French split remaining in place. And it's kind of going against the natural order of things. England and France probably don't want to be part of the same country. They're, no. they're enemies. No, yeah. And it's a very difficult legacy. Ruling France, needing to be part of a huge civil war. It's a massive commitment, arguably an impossible legacy that he leaves to his successors. A more productive tactic might have been to have settled for a really large territory in France and broker a peace deal between... So rather than actually having the claim to the throne, just own most of the land. Yeah, and then sort out the civil dispute between the French so that he doesn't have to get in the fighting, and then he's got a huge amount of land that he can control. And he'd be basically kingmaker. He could still marry into the family and just... Yeah. We should be king. We should. <laughs> also, if we look at his personality, as we sort of got to under scandal, he's not maybe the nicest, most fun chap in the world. He really believed very strongly in um, the divine right... Of kings. In many ways, actually, he's got certain similarities to Richard II, as we said before, but just better. Um, he believed he had a spiritual duty to punish people for their sins against God, and his actions were chosen by God. So, in a way, he was the most absolute monarch that he could really yeah, he was actually have. He believed yeah. he was doing God's yeah. will. 
um, and he has this overbearing sense of pride. Apparently, he wouldn't let people look him in the face. Hey, didn't Edward II do that? Or he had, you had to bow when he... Oh, that's it. Richard II, he had to bow. Richard II, he had to bow if he looked at you, yeah. That's pretty... Know, Does a bit of Lollard burning, burning of heretics. Apparently yeah. seven in his first few years. Henry IV, there are only two in total. That's a good score. Bit more, yeah, a bit more of that. And he was an autocrat. Um, the chronicle Jean uh, Warren, or Jean Warren, said that he was much feared and dreaded by his nobles, um, knights and captains, and people of every degree. All those who disobeyed or infringed his edicts were put to death without mercy. I want an autocrat from a medieval king, though. Yeah, but if you disagree with him, he might cut your head off. Yeah. But he's still, he's still got Parliament sort of there, but, yeah, mm. OK. Well, as you said, he's, he's hard to like, he's not very fun. Ian Mortimer said he did nothing which could be described as self-indulgent or fun. Um, he is a zealous pursuit of this French campaign. In many ways, he's quite a sort of religious zealous as well. Mm. He's got zealous qualities. Autocratic, intolerant, tendency towards sort of brutal um, tactics. I'm going for a big score here. What are you going to give him? I, I was going another big ten. I yeah. can't, I can't, <laughs> because... Because there's, there's just one or two niggles, but <laughs> his personality, um, that doesn't count for me. I think if he, that's just that's uh, that's fluff, that's flussing, yeah. getting uh, away from the serious PR, business of government. Yeah, Treaty of Troyes. I think it, it, okay, we we saw a way that we could have done it better or differently, mm. but that was his goal, and he died achieving. Well, he died yeah. by the fact he died, he didn't achieve it, yeah. but. You know, he was there. And they were coming out of Parliament coming easy about the, the finances, but it was gonna pay off. He he didn't you know, it wasn't it wasn't that he was gonna settle and go, Yeah, finances are a bit grim. He was going all <laughs> the way. But just uh it's big, it's really big. And he's set, and the good stuff. He's got English unity. Yeah. And to a great extent forming a sense of Englishness. As for subjectivity, some of the great schism I think it's pretty. It's really, really good. I think I'm going. I'm going eight point five. Well, that's big stuff. Mm. That's as much as Henry IV got in total. I'm. I'm going to give him a little bit less because I think although what he did was very, very good, he kind of does that quickly. Mm. The restoring the English Union. He does it very quickly. It's very good. But then he's basically just fighting, and he leaves a whole bunch of problems. And as well as the, you know, we can't judge him for what might have happened. At the same time, the fact is. We can't praise him for what might have happened. He does die um, at an unfortunate time when he's just about to make everything good and he leaves um, a very, very young son to have to actually yeah. be king of this. So it's a difficult position. So I'm going to give him a seven. Okay. All right. So that's 15.5 in I'm, total. I'm basically giving 1.5 to dysentery there. Yes. <laughs> I'm scoring dysentery down for doing it all. Longevity. He rules from 1413 to 1422, so I'm afraid that's only nine that's years. terrible, Henry. That's actually the first king since, um, well, since Harold II in 1066 not to manage ten years on the throne. So it's the first post-conquest king not yeah. to make ten years. Indeed. That's pretty bad. That's yeah. really, that's his downfall. That's really going to affect his score. It is indeed. Dynasty, not the program. This is also going to affect his score. He only has one child. Well, it's because of this ridiculous ban he put on himself. <laughs> yes, this chastity thing. Yeah, good grief. And he doesn't have much time, of course, because he marries in 1420 or 1421, dies in 1422. So his one son, Henry VI, as he becomes next week, is only nine months old when mm. he becomes king, That's when he takes up on Henry V. 
very difficult minority. You literally need a baby and nothing else. So that's just a one for Dynasty, which gives him a total of 49, which is actually less than Henry IV, mm. his father. So disappointing score overall, but obviously a couple of very strong areas. Anyway, that's his score, 49. Very interesting reign. But does he have that uh, special quality, the star quality, the great achievement, the legacy that makes him stand out from all the other monarchs? Does he have the... Rex Factor! Well, it's, it's, uh, it's a, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? I have very... I mean, in terms of what we've got against him, all I've got is being potentially a bit lucky with Agincourt and the French Civil War. It all played into his hands. Treaty of Troyes, arguably he overreached himself, left his difficult legacy, and he's a bit unpleasant. Mm. On the other side, he's a legend. Yeah, and you know how I feel about those ones. Unpleasant personality... Uh, <laughs> I think it was good Agincourt it's brilliant it's, it's, it's yeah. other than his death <laughs> it's flawless it really is <laughs> yeah. and it's remarkable thing is he does all this in less than 10 years yeah and it's yeah within that and he only actually thing. goes to France in 1415 for the first time mm. and the Treaty of Tarsus in 1420 so in that tiny period he's achieved yeah. a huge amount it's unprecedented. And, let's not forget, in one year, he did what Henry VIII couldn't do in 40 or however long he reigned for. Had a, had a successor. Indeed. A male successor. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, um, Ali, yes or no, does he have the X Factor? Absolutely. This is, this is a big one. And it's a shame his score doesn't reflect it, but that's why we do this last bit, the Rex Factor. Indeed. He is up there. And it's a yes for me as well. He does have the Rex Factor, so well done to Henry V. Yeah, nice You've uh, won the Rex Factor. You're one of the great kings. Your reputation is well and truly deserved. Yeah, well, now he's um, got the Rex Factor. I'm sure he'll rest in peace. And... I hope so. Yeah. Now, we've done Henry V, but yep. of course he's got the difficulty now of a minority following him. So, how is that going to play in our little uh, sequence that we call... Family Fortunes! So this is to follow, basically, the Wars of the Roses, which is going to burst onto the scene in our next episode, yeah. under Henry VI. So after all this unity... It's all going to fall yeah. apart. So we had all these different families descended from the various sons of Edward III, so now what we're going to do is just catch up with them all, okay. see where they are. Okay. So the Lancastrians, first of all. These are the legitimate sons of John of Gaunt, third son of Edward III. Henry V... Lancastrian king that we've done this week is succeeded by his son, Henry VI. Yep. So next week, Lancastrian's still king. Right, okay. However, Henry VI, of course, is an only child. Henry's three brothers, Thomas and John, die, die without issue, and Humphrey, I think, only have very insignificant children. So despite there being four brothers, four yeah. sons of Henry IV, only one child appears from the next generation. So Henry VI... Because they're all his brothers that supported him. Don't yeah. have children, so Henry VI is the only one there. So they're a bit threadbare. Mm. The other sort of pseudo-Lancastrians are the Beaufort family. And these oh, yeah. are from the sort of less legitimate yeah. marriage of John of Gaunt. We have a chap called John Beaufort. So he's the grandson of John of Gaunt. He gets captured at the uh, Battle of Boge, where one of Henry V's brothers was killed. And he gets held for 13 years. But his younger brother, Edmund Beaufort, too young to fight at the time, also becomes a soldier and becomes a very powerful Duke of Somerset. And he's going to be very powerful in the reign of Henry VI. And this other guy is just in France for 13 years. He's not yeah. involved. Right. Yeah. So those are the main Lancastrians. We then have the sort of Yorkist-ish bunch. Mm -hmm. 
So first off, we've got the Mortimer family. Okay. These are descended from Lionel of Antwerp, who is the second son of Edward III. So actually, you could argue that in a way, they've got a better claim than the Lancastrians. Because it's, it's second. Because right? they're second. Yeah. Edmund Mortimer, um, part of Henry V's reign, as we saw, served Henry loyally. He also serves um, Henry VI quite loyally, but he dies of Ireland in the, of the plague in 1425. And he doesn't have any children. Right. So all of his estates pass to his nephew, who is a chap called Richard Plantagenet. Okay. Next up, we have the actual uh, Yorkists. So there's Edmund of Langley, who's the fourth son of Edward III, Mm. Duke of York. Richard of Connorsborough is one of his children. He's the guy who was the Earl of Cambridge that got executed for the Southampton plot. His um, son is Richard Plantagenet. So all of his lands and estates go to Richard Plantagenet. The elder son, who was the Duke of um, York, was Edward of Norwich. He served Henry V very loyally, but he was one of the few major nobles of the English to be killed at Agincourt. And he also dies without issue. So his title passes to Richard Plantagenet. So this guy's got loads and loads of... Loads of land. So he is now Richard, Duke of York. Right. Famous chap. He's got York, he's Earl of March in Wales, the Mortimer Estates, the Yorkist Estates, Cambridge. He is a powerful, powerful man. Loaded. He's basically as powerful as the king, pretty much, except yeah. that he's not actually king. We then have the Neville family. So these were sort of a powerful um, family, Ralph Neville, who married Joan Beaufort, who was um, a daughter of John mm-hmm. Gaunt. They have many children, chief among whom are a girl called Cecily Neville, who becomes betrothed betro- to... Richard Plantagenet. Oh, God. Again. So he's going to get all the Neville's money and land? We're going to get quite... Not all the Neville's money, but, you know, certainly he's tied in with the family there. So he's becoming quite a powerful man. We also have Richard Neville, who becomes the Earl of Salisbury. He becomes a very major player in the Wars of the Roses, as does his son, also called Richard Neville, who becomes the Earl of Warwick. Oh, this chap, And this is Warwick the Kingmaker. Yeah. So they will be enemies of the Lancastrians and very much on the Yorkist front. As well as this, on the outside, of course, we have the pseudo-pseudo-pseudo-Lancastrians, the Tudors. They haven't been mentioned today, but they are going to come into play. This is sort of getting into the very early years of Henry VI, but we won't cover it at the start, so we'll do it now. Owen Tudor. Mm -hmm. Descended from Resap Grifford, who was a dominant um, sort of powerful man in Wales during the reign of Henry II. He was sent to the English court at the age of seven um, during the reign of Henry IV, fought at Agincourt, and was promoted to the rank of squire and granted English rights. Promoted to squire? That sounds pretty low. He is pretty low, and he is in the household of um, Catherine of Valois, who is Henry V's wife, and then widow. Now, she was denied a strong role in the minority of Henry VI. 1428, Parliament made a statute that dowager queens couldn't marry without the king's permission. But in 1429, she secretly marries her lowly squire, Owen Tudor. Right. Because so, so the, the lowly squire, that's the, the, that's the sort of fellow who'd help the king get his clothes on and stuff. Pretty much, yeah. Get ready for that. Oh, oh OK. It's not entirely um, certain how legal this is, but council is happy, basically, that this powerful woman hasn't married someone of high standing, so they basically let her get away with it. And Herring VI knights Owen and makes his sons Edmund and Jasper earls. So the Tudor family suddenly are becoming quite prominent earls and royal figures at the Lancastrian court. Mm, yeah. So the Tudors are now on the map. So what we're really looking at here 
is Lancastrians and Tudors versus this really powerful guy, Richard of York, Richard Plantagenet. Exactly. Okay. So that's it for Henry V. Incredible reign for him. Yeah. Very successful. Top banana. The next time it's Henry VI. See you then.